This is episode 30 with Katie Hoff. Welcome to The Athletic Mindset. I'm your host, Corey Camp, former Division I swimmer turned personal trainer and coach. Each week, it is my goal to bring you a unique story of an elite athlete's mindset to help you unlock and discover your life's potential. Today, I had the chance to sit down with two-time Olympian, nine-time world champion, and former world record holder, Katie Hoff. Katie shares her story of how she was able to embrace the suck that comes with the decision to go for such lofty goals to be the best in the world. We are all going through some tough times right now. I hope Katie's message sheds some light on how we can come out on the other side of things for the better. So without further ado, let's get into it and welcome on Katie. Hello. Hey Katie, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, thanks for taking my call and taking the time to connect. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's the, the best thing to do right now, <laughs> truly. Obviously, first question I have for you is kind of what's your background in swimming? How'd you get started? And when did you really find that love for the sport? Yeah, so my first start in swimming uh, happened actually in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, we were, my family had just moved from California. Um, and so we were actually staying with my grandparents um, as we got settled. And I idolized this kid in the neighborhood. Um, it was Kings Point Dolphins, for anyone who knows the area, and thought he was so cool. And he swam on the swim team. And I, you know, ran up to my mom and asked her, could I try? Um, and so that was, I was five years old at the time and um, actually got into it for a season was so small and frail and little that I shook like a leaf every single time I raced and every single time I got in the pool. So I decided to quit for a year, um, retire, as I say, and then I got back <laughs> into it um, doing more um, summer swimming at age seven. And then I actually joined my first year-round team, which was Williamsburg Aquatic Club at seven. Okay. Sounds very similar to me. Um, it seems <laughs> the more and more people I talk to um, – in the sport of swimming, it, it's always cool and reassuring that like that local summer team level was kind of the hook. Like that was what got people involved, and then they chose to go make it year round. What was that transition going year round like for you? The transition was kind of tough, to be honest. I I remember even even when I first joined uh, WAC. Williamsburg Aquatic Club. I was still only going twice a week at that point. So it was Tuesdays and Sunday nights. And even at that point, you know, it'd be Sunday night at seven and my mom and I would look at each other and be like, oh my God, we just missed, we just forgot practice. Um, so I definitely didn't have that um, kind of obsessive competitive uh, trait that I developed, you know, probably around nine or 10. Um, I, you know, I wasn't super focused I didn't really understand the difference between you know a pink or purple ribbon which I was obsessed with because purple is to this day my favorite color um but that meant you were getting seventh and eighth versus you know the blue and red ribbons which was first and second Mm -hmm. um so it really didn't click for me um probably until I think something in my head I saw some of my friends and you know noticed that they were beating me and I remember suddenly just not being okay with it. Suddenly it made me mad. And that was kind of the point where I started getting a lot more focused and a lot more um, 
competitive, finding an extra gear in practice uh, around the age of nine. Okay. And then obviously transition, I mean, not too long into it from nine, about, you know, five years later or so, four or five, I guess five, six years later was when you qualified for uh, your first trials and your first Olympic team. What was that kind of mentality going into those 04 trials being so young for you? Yeah, the, the mentality was one, I think, of fear and probably being very naive, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you, like you said, literally five years prior, I was just starting, you know, to get into the sport and I had no idea that you know, I, I kind of said to everyone when I was nine and 10 that, yes, I want to be an Olympian. I want to make an Olympic team, but I certainly had no idea that would, would happen, you know, in the next Olympiad, you know, I was thinking more 2008. So I felt like throughout the year prior to 2004, I definitely, you know, started growing confidence because prior to that, I remember sitting down with my coach in 2003 and saying, you know, I think if I could just make an Olympic trials final, that would be, I'd be really pumped with that to get that experience, you know, racing the the top people. I'd be, I'd be really proud of that. And then as the year progressed, I started just dropping tons of time. And I remember going to the Santa Clara Grand Prix, which is uh, the Grand Prix about, a month and a half out from trials and I, I popped the top time in the nation in the 400 I am. And at that point I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, this, this could actually happen. Um, and again, terror and fear, which definitely manifested itself in the prelims of the 400 I am. I had a terrible swim. I took it out too fast. Uh, I let the nerves get the best of me. I gained 10 full seconds from my best time uh, and barely made it into the final. I, I, to this day, seven is my lucky number. You probably saw in my email um, <laughs> because I was in lane seven of, I qualified six uh, for the 400 I am and uh, really had to kind of turn it around in the course of, you know, six or seven hours. Yeah. And I was, fortunate enough to also talk with Elizabeth Beisel and it sounds and after talking with her and reading her latest book it sounds like both of you guys struggled with nerves what kind of allowed you or what did you find worked for you to kind of get those nerves under control in a constructive way so that it was helping your performance and not hindering your performance like adding 10 seconds from your best time (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, it's a very fine line because you obviously, I always tell people being nervous is normal. Everyone gets nervous. If you didn't, it mean that you didn't really care. (laughs) So there's going to be that level of nerves. But like you said, there's, there's a point where it can be very detrimental to, uh, you know, making you so nervous that you take it out too fast or you don't follow your strategy or you forget to breathe. Um, so I think for me, a lot of my confidence comes from experience. It comes from working my process, you know, being able to go back and think, okay, you know, I, I hit these paces in workout. I've done this before. Uh, so anytime I've struggled in my career, it's been when something's really new. And I've always been this very habitual routine person. You ask my husband even to this day when I'm out of my routine, I am not a fun person to be around. And so uh, that that I think was my, anytime I've struggled with that that's that's my issue and so for me just as an example in 
the 2004 trials, um, I, you know, my coach sat me down, um, at that point I already swam, you know, in the, in Olympic trials. So I had that under my belt and he just had to kind of remind me of what I had just done that entire year and how I had swum and how I had swum even six weeks prior. Uh, and so I kind of came into the finals, a different person mentally. I was able to just relax and kind of have a, you've got nothing to lose type of attitude. Um, because I could, you know, then relax at that point. I was about to say, I'm, I'm the same way as far as creature habit. And I preach yeah. to people that I work with, like to develop those habits and, and all that breeds a lot more success, but obviously life happens and it's imperfect. What, did you Did you learn anything that I guess worked for you or, you know, you're still working through it when you are thrown off that normal routine that kind of helps like bring you back to center? Is it a talk with a coach? Is it a teammate or something like that? I think it's a combination of all of those things. I, I almost need those people, like even now, post-swimming life, you know, my husband is, is a great compliment to me where he can be like, hey, you're doing it. You're spiraling. <laughs> literally say those words to me. Uh, so I think that similarly within my swimming career, having a coach um, or, you know, a parent to be able to say, you know, hey, you know, for me, I think talking it out has always been my thing. You know, I've never been someone that uh, keeps things in. I, I need to talk about it. So for me, being able to have that person that will listen to me and, and have me be able to get it off my chest and kind of logically talk through what's going on um, instead of keeping it inside and all the irrational thoughts that just aren't helpful are going to go on. Um, so that's always how I've kind of worked through it. Um, and I think everyone has their, their own way. Some people, you know, meditation or journal or visualize. Um, but I've just always been such an outgoing extroverted person that, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I just got to get it out. (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally hear you. And it's, it's nice that you have kind of that support system now and your husband of like, he's able to kind of rein you in and make you aware of. I feel like where athletes, you know, struggle the most is when they let those negative thoughts spiral and they're yes. unaware of those thoughts spiraling. They don't have that self-awareness yeah, to like hone in and be like, okay, let me take a deep breath, catch myself and do something to reset. Um, I found that's kind of been what separates um, the people, the good from the, the great and all that is the ones that are able to kind of catch themselves before it's too late and they'll be able to turn yeah. in, you know, more consistently, you know, great performances. Um, yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think it's, you know, acknowledging it, just being able to acknowledge and, and part of it's kind of being vulnerable, right? You know, being able to say, look, I'm not okay. <laughs> I'm not handling this well. Um, and, and that happens, I think, at all levels. And I think there's even a stigma sometimes I think about, you know, professional or Olympic athletes, like, wow, they're so lucky, you know, you see them do some great performance. And to think that there's not this behind the scenes monologue of doubt, um, or worry or nerves, um, is definitely not the case. You know, I think before any world record or American record I've broken, I I don't think I'd ever it's been standing behind the blocks like, oh, I'm for sure going to do this or not been super nervous. Um, so I think that's something I always try to really uh, touch on when I talk with younger athletes because 
I think it's it's a it's a really great lesson to know that everyone is dealing with this, and like you said, what separates people is how they're able to deal with it. I think that's what's eye opening for that next generation of athlete is seeing people like yourself that are you know obviously have experienced the pinnacle of success in their sport struggle with the same things that you know kids struggle with in middle school high school college level what whatever level it is it's like everyone has kind of those inner kind of battles and Mm -hmm. how you respond to it is really kind of determines the outcome obviously you've now at this point retired and have had a, a ton of international competition and experience under your belt what would you say was the most beneficial race that you've ever swum in terms of developing you as an athlete and developing kind of your mindset whether it's giving you confidence or anything else yeah that's a great question. I think for me, it was a span of, and it always goes back to the 400 IM, uh, which I is my least favorite event, but it's my best event. So it just kind of defines me. It's my least favorite event because it's so painful. Yep. Uh, but there's also no other race that, you know, gives me that feeling of satisfaction and fulfillment when I'm able to do a best time or break a record. So I always kind of just had to embrace that. Uh, you know, I think that the 2004 race in Athens for me, or just my Athens performance in general, which was, you know, kind of a disaster. I I think I can say that at this point, 16 years later, uh, you know, again, I I wasn't my first time swimming internationally, first time out of the country, uh, you know, first time kind of on this national team. And I didn't, you know, I didn't handle the nerves well. I I let the nerves get the best of me. Um, You know, on my Olympic debut was me getting so sick from lactic acid and not breathing before the race that I vomited all over the pool deck in front of thousands of people. So that was my, you know, that was my debut. And I think what it taught me is that after that, I think, you know, there was kind of like a a, a fork in the road. I could have let that break me, which I think it could have broken a lot of people. It was a very traumatizing experience to have, you know, reporters and, and people online, even at that point, which is, (laughs) <laughs> Thank goodness it wasn't yeah. in 2020 because I would have gotten killed on Instagram and on in the media. But even that to, to have, you know, things said about me and, and people call things, you know, a disaster or failure, all these things was really hard to take. And I, I kind of then turned to the process again. You know, my coach and I sat down, we went back and kind of went back to the drawing board and it was like, okay, well, how can we make you not terrified of this race? How can we make you able to just handle these nerves? How can we allow you to conquer this race? And that's what we set out to do probably even just a week and a half after we got back from those games. Um, And I just let that fuel me for the next, um, you know, the next few years. And you know, I think that the race that then complements that on the other side of it was 2007 World Championships in the 400 IM. I broke the world record, um, and I was finally able to to sit there and say, "Okay, like I have a handle on this race. I know how to handle the strategy. I know how to race it internationally." And those three years of hellish sets—the only way to say it—hellish sets um, finally paid off, and it just made me believe in the process that much more. How did you, I guess, learn to drown out that kind of negative energy? Or, you know, like when in the moment, like you said, you're just swamped with either 
reporters, media, you know, people online kind of being either poking fun of you or, you know, making comments when they don't know you. How did you kind of handle all that? It's a really hard question because I don't, when I look back to being, you know, I just turned 15 years old. I don't know. I don't know if it was just a level of being, just being bulletproof because you're young and you're kind of naive and you're like, well, I I love this sport. And so I'm just going to kind of, it goes back to my message. I'm just going to embrace the pain of this and cry it out and be upset um, but I, I guess I never, even later in my career and in that moment, I never felt like quitting was an option because I was so invested in, you know, being at that point, I was happy to be an Olympian, but I still had goals of winning Olympic medals and breaking world records. And those were still very much top of mind for me that I felt like it was almost like this force pulling me forward of, yeah, yeah, but this happened, but okay, like you're going to keep going because you haven't accomplished your goal yet. <laughs> so this kind of weird, um, I don't know, yeah, just this weird force pushing pushing me forward, and um, I think that kind of continued throughout other setbacks in my career um, because that goal was so necessary for me to feel like I was extraordinary, to feel like I was accomplishing kind of what I set out to do, uh, you know, really early on. Yeah, I think that's super well said. And whether you realized at the time or not, you probably used a variation of a technique that I really like to work with people on is just acknowledging it and then flushing it, whether it's a negative performance, negative comments. Like, you just have mm-hmm. to, you know, let it do its job. Like, acknowledge a bad performance, like, learn from it. And then after that, you flush it down the toilet and you never deal with it again because you're moving forward and it's on to the next thing. It's on to 2007 or it's on to 2008 for you, you know, that kind of thing. You exactly. just got to keep moving forward. Uh, so I think that's great that you were using some form of that. <laughs> Without even realizing it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, what would you say kind of your mentality, you talked about it, how it shifted through your career. Um, what would you say ultimately it ended up with? Like how did you approach kind of the tail end of your career? I think it it, it stayed, the framework of it stayed pretty much the same, you know, the embracing and acknowledging of, you know, the pain, uh, the failures, the process, the curveballs of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that as you get older, it, it can be, you're not as naive and you're more aware of, comments and I think that the more times that I felt like you know as I continued that was what 2004 my success of who I was as a person became you know unhealthily intertwined with how I was competing and how I was doing so that I think hadn't really happened quite yet in 2004 um, but as it became more and more kind of like think about like a boa constrictor mm-hmm. of my career around me um the, the losses became a lot harder to get back up from. Um, and so I think different periods of time, you know, when I, I missed the team in 2012, um, you know, I ended up taking a year off because I just needed time to kind of 
try to separate Katie the person, Katie the swimmer. And I think a lot of elite athletes, I think anyone who, who goes through a transition of, of failure or setback goes through this. And you're just kind of trying to to figure out, um, you know, who you are with, without that, without the medals or the records or, you know, who you are just standing on your own. And um, I think that was the, the biggest thing. As I continue to try to embrace those things, it just became a heck of a lot harder. Mm-hmm. I think the ch- the unique challenge that sports like like swimming or track and field pose on its athletes is obviously you need to have that that want and the desire to win gold or set a world mm-hmm. record to get to that level, but being able to be mature enough and separate like that's not the end result. The end result really that matters is how you personally did you know, it's you against your best time kind of deal versus you, you can't control what the seven other people in that final heat do. You know what I mean? Um, Were you able, uh, were you ever able to kind of make that realization in your career? I think I'm trying. Uh If I'm, if I'm being honest, you know, even if I, I look back on 2008, you know, there's a lot of examples of that, like what you just said of, you know, I broke the, the American record in the 200 freestyle in Beijing in the 200 freestyle final. And I got fourth and in the media's eyes in America's eyes. And even in my eyes at that point, that was a failure. And in any other situation, you know, if you're at, you know, a nationals or the I mean, Olympic trials where you win and you break the American record, it's a whole different reaction perception lens Mm -hmm. and that's like a very big example to me of wow you know I got a best time I broke an American record and yet I was super disappointed and that was uh, from things that were completely out of my control I didn't have control over what other those three girls went faster than me I I left it all in the pool Uh, and similarly with my first Olympic medal you know I, I swam the 400 I am I won a bronze medal and it was a half a second off my best time that I did at the Olympic trials, which was the world, I broke the world record at the time, you know, six weeks prior. Um, but again, it was perceived as a fail because it wasn't a gold. And so that kind of was the kind of the setting of the, I guess the theme of that meet for me is I had a couple swims that weren't that could have been better, but I had a couple swims that were really strong swims for me. And because they weren't gold and someone went faster, it, it was really hard to perceive that as a win. Um, and as, as a successful meet. Uh, so I've, I've kind of, you know, gone throughout this time and, you know, the further you get away from the sport, you have a lot more perspective. Um, but honestly, it has really taken me a long time to, to feel proud and, display the medals and, and feel good about it. So I think that's just another lesson that you come away with of, Hey, control what you can control. And then you've got to hang your hat on that or your suit and goggles on that. And you've, you've got to then move on. Yeah. And I think it's even more difficult. I mean, it's one thing to say it, obviously For it's sure. one thing yep. to, and it's a totally another thing to be a hundred percent behind it and believe it. And I think it's almost near impossible when you have kind of the media uh, and like everything around you, especially like in in 08, obviously with, you know, Michael going for his eight, it was kind of like, well, that's the standard and the expectation he's setting for, 
USA swimming as, as a whole. Um, and it's hard to kind of navigate, <laughs> I guess, that field <laughs> and be okay yes. with your best was your best. And that's kind of what, you know, that you got the best, you set the American record. Like, that's awesome. Like, no one else in America had ever gone that time up in, you know, up until that moment. Like, there's something that you should take pride in there um, that you can't control whether that dictates a, a medal or not, you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of it, you know, and I talk, I'll, I'll be talking about this in, in my book soon, but, you know, I, I got the female Phelps title a lot throughout. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some, a lot of comparisons, right? We were both in Baltimore for a while. Uh, he grew up in Baltimore. We both worked with Speedo. We both made our first Olympic team at 15. We both swam a lot of events. So I understand, and it was obviously, you know, an honor and a compliment to even be compared. But at the same time, I'm not Michael Phelps. And, you know, he, I, I didn't consider myself going in as like this favorite in five different individual events. You know, mm-hmm. I definitely came in very strong and came in uh, ranked, you know, in the top. But I think that that also played a big factor in kind of the way that my Olympic Games were framed because there was that looming comparison um, next to me heading into it. So That's a tough, I mean, obviously a comparison <laughs> <Yeah>. that swimmers <laughs> would love to be mentioned in that same boat, but it comes with a lot of added pressure that might not necessarily lead to your best performances if you're not equipped to deal with that just yet. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah, and I think I always, I don't necessarily think that that added pressure or nerves, you know, I kind of at that point felt like, okay, well, I'm going to, I just, you know, I want to win medals. I'd like to win a gold medal. Um, And so I think, I don't think it affected that. I just think that coming away from three from an Olympic Games with three Olympic medals in any other circumstance should be a win. But mm-hmm. when it's compared to not winning eight gold medals, it definitely seems like a fail. <laughs> so it's all about the frame that you look through it. You know, exactly. look through things. Exactly. Uh, obviously, you had plenty of other successes in your career. Can you describe kind of those listening? what kind of went into and what it felt like to break a world record? Absolutely. I think it's like this perfect moment of everything coming together and stars all lining. I think, you know, the second I touched, um, and I, I think, you know, I've broken it individually twice and once was at the world championships in 2007. And then once was at trials in 2008. And, each of them have a different special place in my heart. I think, um, 2007, because it was kind of like this moment of conquering this event that had beaten me so badly three years prior. Um, and just this flood of, of just this pure sense of pride, you know, you're, it's, it's, I think the most, uh, raw moment where you you actually can see and I don't think there's a lot of moments like that where you can actually see okay I touch the wall I look around and everything that I just did for these past few years just paid off and I can see it the time it's physical you know I I think it's it's very unique in sport um to, to have that um and so 
I think whenever I think about it, I mean, even now when I watch the video, I get chills because I just know kind of everything that went into that um, and actually seeing it manifest itself is, is really emotional. And then I think in 2008, it was it was pretty cool just because it was happening at the same time as I was making, you know, my second Olympic team. It was the first uh, day of the meet. So it's getting the jitters out and then to, to make it next to, uh, that was the same race that Elizabeth Beisel made her first Olympic team at 15. Like I had done four years before, um, and getting to be by her when she did that was, was really neat as well. Cause she and I have become really good friends. Um, so each, each has a very different special place in my heart. Um, but you know, when I look back, it's just that moment where, everything everything worked <laughs> I was about to say it's difficult for non-athletes to understand that like a four and a half minute race really has like thousands and thousands of hours yeah. of <laughs> looking at a black line <laughs> behind it it's it's not just you know you showed up that day and things came together in some ways yes yeah. they did but you know what I mean yeah, and I think, you know, I guess you could say the same, I mean, the same thing with any endeavor, um, but I think there's something about, um, you know, any type of sport where it's just this split moment that it happens, it either happens or it doesn't, you, know, you, you put your hand on the wall first, or you put your hand on the wall, maybe even half a second less, and it doesn't happen, um, versus maybe a, another, you know, something that you work on, like a project, or um, in the arts, where it, it kind of, is, is a work in progress and it's coming along. Um, so it definitely makes the accomplishment a huge rush, um, but it's also this high risk moment because it could also, um, you know, within tens and hundreds of a second, go a completely different direction. Well, that's what makes it worth it. Because if you're not exactly if you're not risking exactly. that, you're not going to be able to to make that jump and make that leap to some sort of feat like. American record or world record or you know a hundred percent yeah um you mentioned earlier also you're a creature of of habit and your routines did you find what did you find I guess your most successful routine was in I guess your swimming days I think that it was probably a couple different things depending on if it was a meet or workout I, I clung to um a certain routine for meets uh, down from, you know, when I was going to get in for my first warm up, it was always an hour and a half to my specific warm up, it was always the same uh, to, you know, what I was eating to when I put my suit on to when I got back in for my second warm up. I mean, all of those things were giving me then like little nuggets of confidence because I knew I had done these things time and time again and I had swum successfully. And so that was something at the meets that, you know, it didn't matter if I was swimming at just, you know, a grand prix or a state meet or I was swimming at the Olympics. I was going to replicate that every single time. Um, and then I think in practice very similarly, you know, I'd have a very set time I get to practice I had a very set uh you know kind of pre-activation warm-up that I would do before I got in the water um and I was very um I would get very nervous for workouts because again I placed so much uh confidence and importance uh, on how I was performing in workout that I felt like if I had a Saturday workout where I didn't hit the paces 
it ruined my weekend mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, you know, I felt like that was like another little kind of, as people say, you know, another little, little deposit in the bank. And if the deposit wasn't enough or it wasn't, let's say, perfect in my eyes, I felt like I lost that. And that was taken out so that, you know, maybe if I'm standing on the blocks at the Olympic trials and I'm, you know, going for this race, I didn't want to have to think back to that day and realize I wasn't, I was, you know, half a percent less than I should have been, or I gave half a percent less effort than I should have. Um, I remember even in 2003, I made my coach come back on a Saturday afternoon from a Saturday morning pace of 200 IMs because I didn't do it how I wanted to. And so I did the set over again by myself. (laughs) That's how crazy I was. Um, But that's, that's where all my confidence was derived. So I didn't really feel like I had a choice. Like if that's where it was coming from, I better make it, you know, near flawless. That's exact. That's what I tell people I coach. It's like each day you show up, you're putting a deposit in. And then, like, when it comes time to meet day or that, you know, taper meet comes around, like, cash it out. Like, you, you, you put don't in the be work. Short. And, yeah. yeah, you don't want to show up two workouts short or two sets short of making junior nationals, nationals, Olympic trials, whatever level it is, you know. You kind yeah. of have to be sure enough behind or beforehand. It's funny you mentioned also the eating. I was the same way. I would eat a bowl of oatmeal and a fruit smoothie before every prelims and then mm-hmm. before every finals I would have another smoothie and I would have a thin cut chicken breast with uh, mozzarella cheese tomato slice and basil <laughs> on top and I just I got in that habit from like middle school onward and it was kind of like my body's cue of like alright some stuff's about to happen like I was priming my mind and my body to, to perform at the level that I needed too yeah yeah it's a real thing um and i think i think it's just i always said like you don't want a case of the what ifs like you don't want any moment where you could drive yourself insane if you're sitting there saying what if and that has to do with everything that you're talking about um from the eating to the the routine to the warm-up to the workouts it, it all plays you know a big role in that and it's all really important yeah, you don't want to leave anything to chance, which I totally understand. Um, you've made the, you've made the transition now, and you you touched on it earlier. Um, going into keynote speaking, and your latest speech is all about embracing the suck. What does that term kind of mean to you? And what's the biggest takeaway that listeners can get from that phase or phrase? I mean, yeah. So embracing the suck is it actually works well because it's exactly what we've been talking about, you know, embracing, embracing the pain, embracing the failure, embracing the process, embracing that life's an adventure and you're going to have some curveballs, even though, you know, the process and maybe you think the outcome's going to go flawlessly. Um, and, and the biggest message of that that I really challenge people is you're only going to be able to time and time again, embrace the suck. If what you're the goal you're going after is big enough and the goal you're going after means more to you than anything. And I think that that is the problem a lot of times where, you know, maybe someone isn't able to get through the failure or gets knocked down by some random occurrence because life happens or, um, you know, 
puts everything into it for four years, five years, and fail. And I think if you, like I said, that you know, if you do have that goal that that is you know more important to you than eating or sleeping, you're that force is gonna pull you back up without you even realizing it. And sometimes you might need family, you might need extra support because embracing it might be too painful. But no matter what, you're going to get back up. Um, but the challenge is find that thing, that goal that that is big and maybe scary. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it, it it's something that you are scared that you may not even be able to accomplish. But it's something that, that makes your heart beat. It makes you get up in the morning and it, it you know, kind of lights that passion inside of you. Those are the only worth the only goals worth going after. Um. Exactly, but it's crazy, you know. In this world, yeah, I think that it's just like you're supposed to you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that, and yes, there are certain things that you need to check in the box and and accomplish as as a part of a journey. But I do think that sometimes it can be scary to go after a goal that's maybe not as big as you want. Um, but those are to me that. It, to me, it's easier to go after the goals that mean more to you than anything because then you kind of have it all set. You know, you're going to be able to get back up from the failures. Um, but if you don't, you're probably not going to be able to get back up and then you're going to be starting from square one anyways. <laughs> so I feel like um, that's kind of always my encouragement and my message and um, just letting people know that, again, like going back to the Olympian thing, you know, embracing the suck happens every single day. And so it doesn't matter what level you're at. You're every single person is going to have to go through that, that heartbreak and those, um, you know, setbacks and, and ups and downs. And, um, it's just the people that can, in, can embrace that the best are the ones that keep on keeping on. So, yeah, I think it's the ability to reframe failures in a, in a positive outlook or, learn from them and move on from it is kind of what what I guess it's all about you know because you can let a failure keep you down or you can learn from it and you can move on from it yeah and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier is it's acknowledging it I think sometimes you know in our society we're supposed to be super positive and optimistic and I agree I think optimism is is necessary but I think sometimes it's okay to say hey this really sucks (laughs) it doesn't mean you're being negative it means just you're acknowledging it so then it kind of loses its power over you at that point but I think if you're faking it and just saying like oh no, no no it's all okay it's all okay that almost takes more emotional energy to cover it up and then you're never really facing it and addressing it. And it's going to rear its ugly head at some point in your life. Um, so I'm just a strong believer in kind of turning around and facing it, um, even though it might be really painful. Um, it, it's, it's just kind of a necessity um, to, to move on. So you have to face it head on to get over it or to get around yes. it or whatever it is you're trying to do. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's like if you're just carrying around... The analogy I love is if you have a backpack with a brick and every failure you have is a brick, like it's fine to carry around that brick for like a day, maybe, and, you know, and then more failures pile on. You just have bricks and bricks in your backpack. Like you're going to develop back pain because 
your backpack's really, really heavy now. Yeah, so I love that. the moment you can learn to let go of the brick and toss it, you're lighter. You have less care and, you know, you can go about your day better. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that analogy. Um, obviously, um, I would use, uh, sorry, you mentioned you have an upcoming book here. Um, can you give us a little preview on that? Is it still on Embracing the Suck or is it a different topic or kind of a mix of the two? It's a mix. I okay. would say, you know, some of it is just giving some insight to me, you know, in my early years. Um, and then some of it is kind of pulling back the curtain on some of, you know, the setbacks I've had in my career, some of the highs, some of the lows. Um, but but it, it always the underlying thread is, is really embracing the suck and and embracing um everything that comes along with that uh and so there are a lot of things that I really did push down for a really long time you know I I left the sport of swimming and kind of just went off the grid when I retired um Mm -hmm. because I retired just not on my own uh terms you know I got a pulmonary embolism in my lungs and I was forced to retire. And so I didn't feel like my backpack of bricks was definitely causing major back pain because (laughs) I I really, I really didn't. And so now it's been very freeing to be able to speak candidly, speak authentically and vulnerably about my career um, so that I feel like it can help others do the same in their own endeavors, whether it's sport or in business. Um, And so the book is, is especially in the second half will very much be about the transition, um, you know, onward you know I, I cover my career but I think talking about the transition as an athlete into this corporate setting uh, is kind of crazy and I've kind of had the, because I just turned my back on swimming for a little bit and, and decided to try to define myself in a different world uh, I definitely have a, a great appreciation and perspective on you know just corporate life or the um, that you say like the regular world um <laughs> as well as in the sporting world so um, i'm excited to share that and um you know hopefully my story can inspire those to you know keep fighting their fight and keep embracing their suck um so they can ultimately you know achieve some extraordinary things yeah it sounds awesome i think more people need to talk about finding that identity post-sport because i think it's it's something that athletes at every level struggle with, whether, you know, you just competed in high school, like you go to college and you don't have those high school sports anymore. Like that was a part of your identity. And then it, yeah. it's almost like the higher you reach in sport, the more attached you are to that identity of you and sport as you as a person. Like they're one and the same when in actuality they should be two different things like as you learned, you are more than just the the world records and the and the medals and and all that you did as a swimmer. Like you're a person, you're now gonna be an author, a speaker. Like there's so much more to it than just what was on paper. Yeah, and it, but it's a it's crazy because when you say it, it sounds so like yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like I'm sitting there listening to you, like oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. But it took me. <laughs> so many years to kind of heal and I think everyone's timeline is very very different you know some people are able to kind of 
snap into it pretty quickly and, and be, be fine. Some, some people, you know, maybe take a year or two. I think it just kind of depends on what you've gone through. Um, you know, how I think for me, like I talked about my normal process is, is speaking about it. And I kept a lot in for a really long time, um, which is not normal for me. Normally mm. I, would talk through things. So I think that's probably what there was uh, the delay of kind of some healing and, and feeling ready to get back into the swimming community um, that I loved and was a part of for so long. It's taken me, you know, four or five years to really get back to that place. So I think that's another thing. People shouldn't feel like there's any set timeline. Like maybe it takes someone 10 or 15 years, you know, and that's okay. Um, I think it's just, at some point, if you do have, you know, hurt or if you do have um, things that need to be healed, they need to be addressed at some point because, um, you know, you're never going to be able to fully live that happy, carefree lifestyle again if you don't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very similar, I think, to those out there that could relate probably as a uh, long-term relationship breakup. It's like we all know yeah. people that you go through that breakup and, like, two weeks later they're going on dates and then you know people that go through that breakup and they're a hermit for two years <laughs> you know totally everyone or has that timeline yeah or you've got those people that break up go on dates and you're like i know that this person is not okay you yeah. know they 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 see people and they're still in love with the other person so there's this, this wide variety of of how people handle it but you're so right you know your relationship with your sport or with your job or you know whatever you feel like truly defines you when you stop it it is a breakup it's it's very similar in so many ways um and so you kind of have to mend your broken heart (laughs) and and uh find a way to do that yeah i mean you go through embracing the suck throughout that and now you Mm -hmm. have to learn to embrace the suck post it might mean a different thing it might mean looking a lot more inward but there's a way through you know, to the other side and to way more of your life, not just what used to define you. Now the limits are, there's no limits there. There's no boundaries in some senses, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. When can we expect this book to to come out? (sighs) I don't have any specific hard dates, but, uh, you know, I will say this, this whole quarantine thing is definitely allowing a lot more time to, to, to get things done. Um, so, so looking forward in the near future. Um, but I'll definitely keep you, um, keep you updated as that timeline gets closer. Yeah. hundred percent. I'd love to, like I said, I, I read Elizabeth's book. I, I love learning more and more about people from all aspects and would definitely purchase, um, and give it a read, uh, when it does oh, come thank out. You. So looking forward to that. Well, Katie, Thank I w- you. Yeah, I want to take the time to just acknowledge you for just being an inspiration in the sport of swimming, but also to youth all over the world, uh, myself as included. I grew up watching you compete at kind of that highest level. I was about nine years old when you made your first Olympic Games, so I remember watching Athens and being like, oh my gosh, like who is this person? And like <laughs> following you to 08 and kind of following your career. Um so I just want to say thank you for all that you have done for me personally and then for the sport of swimming in general. What's one thing that you have left on your bucket list to accomplish now? And where can people listening keep up with you as you go for that? 
Yeah. Well, first off, thank you so much. That means a lot to hear. Um, and it, you know, it's funny. I never ever think of myself that way. Um, but it's, it's always, um, means so much to hear that. Um, and I think in terms of what's next, I mean, honestly, you know, I idolize a lot of different speakers and I think it's, it's truly a skill to be able to command a room and make an impact and, you know, really, um, bring that type of energy. And so I would, you know, I would love to be, um, a, a big keynote speaker speaking to, um, you know, big, big companies or big retreats or big summits, um, where I can make, you know, an impact on a, you know, small or big scale, uh, with, with a lot of people, um, just kind of sharing everything I've, I've gone through in my career and in my life. Um, and I will definitely be keep keeping everyone up to date on my Instagram. That's probably a website coming soon, but Instagram is KT Hoff seven. Um, but that seven there still from lane seven. So. <laughs> It all makes sense now. Well, that's awesome. I, I checked out your TED Talk as well, so I think you're well on your way to being someone that is able to command a room. Uh, you're well-polished, you. so I'm looking forward to kind of watching that progression and watching you take on these next endeavors. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on and um, taking the time, and hopefully you're finding yourself in a safe and quarantined area during all of this. And hopefully we get out of this soon. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Katie. She spoke a ton on preparation and her process. That is something you as an athlete can control. Learn to focus on each set and day like Katie did. And those long-term goals become that much closer. If you haven't done so already, send this episode to a friend, family member, or teammate who could use that boost. Stay up to date with all of our latest episodes by following me on Instagram at Athletic Mindset Podcast. And remember, if you can change your mindset and how you think, you'll be able to change your life one thought at a time. I'll see you all next week.